A reading from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the book of Acts, chapter 19, starting with verse 1. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Gospel according to St. Mark. Glory to you, Lord Christ. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you all this morning. It's good to be back with you all. I hope that you had a wonderful Christmas and uh, holiday season and all that's been attached to it and Christmas tide. Uh, I want to just start by saying how thankful I am for um, last Sunday. Uh, last Sunday, for many of us, beginning of the year is crazy. It may, that may feel like a decade ago or something, but, but last Sunday I uh, had the opportunity to go back and watch the service online through the miracle of technology, and uh, uh, it was just really beautiful to, um, for you all to jump in and to lead in the way that you did and to worship together. Uh, I think one of the signs of health of a community, and I've heard this before, is when the, the, pa- the 
lead pastor or the rector or whatever it is is gone, what happens? <laughs> and, and you all stepped up in just really profound ways. So as always, I'm thankful for Deacon Jessica and just the way that she leads and has led our community. Thankful for John. John did a phenomenal job preaching last Sunday and blew all of our minds, I think. It was really, really great. And so uh, really thankful for all of that. Um, and then I always think one of my pet peeves as a preacher is if a, a pastor a pastor needs to be appropriately biographical and talking about their own lives. And so I wanted to share with you a little bit of what's happened with me the past couple weeks, but I want to warn you, I'm not going to go too long on that because I hate that when preachers do that. But I, I have had a momentous uh, past couple weeks. You know, I turned 40 years old a couple weeks ago, which is a big uh, milestone for me and had a lot of trepidation headed up to it. <laughs> Just kind of with aging and big milestones and all that. What does this mean? What's this look like? It's also marked, many of you know, that our church is getting ready to celebrate 10 years. And really, I planted sacrament when I was 30, and now I'm 40. And they feel very different, those ages. <laughs> and so all of the feelings coming up with that and moving towards that uh, were interesting. Uh, and then my parents, when I was in Tulsa, my birthday's the day after Christmas. So I've always celebrated my birthday around my family and usually my immediate family. And they just celebrated me in a surprising and big way that it was unexpected. Um, and uh, they did a video for me, and some of you shared on that video, and that just thank you for that. This was all just really meaningful words to me and, um, and was just, just so much joy. I mean, I, the things that I was afraid of stepping into 40 all was like, okay, this is going to be okay. <laughs> this is good. This is wonderful. Um, and then uh, that night, we went and saw... Ferrari, uh, which if I was a superstitious person, I would say that shouldn't have been the movie that I saw. That is a car accident filled movie. And then right afterwards, I got in a car accident, um, was hit as I was driving through it. I was going through a green light, minding my business, and somebody just rammed into me. Um, and so totaled our car, and we had all kinds of feelings around that. I was pretty scary, to be honest. I'm not somebody that wants to admit that I was scared, but that was a real scary experience. Thankfully, everybody's okay and healthy and all that stuff. My brother was with me and then really just felt the outpouring of support and love from people and all of that uh, on the night of my birthday. So there's been a bunch of different emotions for me <laughs> the past couple weeks that I've been wrestling through and working through. And I felt like what the Spirit has said to me in this time is I'm with you in all of it and even in this too. Uh, and I hope that's true for that we all understand that and receive that today, that regardless of where, where our feelings are today or what we're experiencing, it's not that our feelings don't matter. They do matter. In fact, they're important, and it's important to acknowledge them and to step into them, and then also to realize that in the difficult feelings and the joy and the roller coaster of life, that God's with us in it all. So that's what I hope that we hear today. Um, and today we are in the feast, or we are in the season of Epiphany. So yesterday was the feast of Epiphany, January sixth. It's always on January sixth, no matter what uh, day of the week that is. That's when it is. And then in the Western Church, that feast last night. Those of you that were here know this. Uh, commemorates the coming of the Magi, and we told that story. Who visited Jesus when he was a small child? But as with all of these things that we've talked about. The feast is not just one day. It also inaugurates a whole season. So we are stepping into the season of Epiphany, or maybe you've heard it called the season after Epiphany or Epiphany Tide. There's a bunch of different names for it. But the word Epiphany means revelation, 
And this is the season of Revelation. So what we're going to do with our readings over the next several weeks is we're going to see different manifestations or revelations of who Christ is, different revealings or light or shining of glory of who Jesus is in the world. God has revealed God's self in Jesus to all nations. And actually, you know what would help? is if I didn't pull up last night's sermon, if I pulled up this week, tonight's sermon, and was able to, and here it is. So some of you got that background from last night as well. Um, but then today we celebrate, the, uh, we celebrate the baptism of Jesus. This is one of those revealings. As we step into epiphany, there's this reality that God is always drawing to his people, even those who are far away. God is always drawing us. And in Epiphany, we're faced with two sets of facts at the same time, okay? That it may seem like in our world that Herod is in charge of the world, okay? That's what it seems like. It may seem like oppression and violence rules things. That's one set of facts because we can look at the world and we can say, that's true. Those things are happening and it's real. And the world is dark and scary and broken and not as it should be. And yet the incarnation of Jesus says there's another set of facts. God did not give up on the world. He is the God who draws near. So there's a new king who has been born. This king was born on the underside of power, a true prince of peace and the savior of the world. And today we see that affirmed and proclaimed in the baptism of Jesus. But first, our Old Testament reading, which is probably very familiar to most of you, comes from the very beginning of the Hebrew Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now this shows us immediately something about the character and nature of God. And there's a few things, there's four things that I hope we can hold on today. So if you're a note taker, I'm not usually very good for note taking people, but today we're going to have four things we're going to point you to. So first, God creates out of nothing. That's the first thing we see. Ancient pagan peoples trusted in tribal deities, okay? Each god, tribal god, had certain responsibilities. So if you were Egyptian and you lived near the Nile River, the Nile god was your god. If you're a Babylonian, your god was called Marduk. The Canaanites trusted in the war god Moloch. Moloch was particularly scary because he protected his people as long as they provided child sacrifice. So they offered their children to the god. In the ancient world, the gods were believed to fight against one another. So you have all these tribal deities fighting against one another as peers in a cosmic battle for triumph. But Israel's story here from the very beginning cuts through the pagan mythology to affirm that in the beginning, Yahweh, the one true God, created the heavens and the earth. Now, this was an odd thing for a nation made up of desert-wandering tribes to say, how does your God get to be the God who's over everything? Why do you think your God is the one who created all things? The other thing that was fantastic and unique about the God of the people of Israel is the way that God creates. So among the people of Babylon, there was another creation myth. Some of you may have studied this before, but another creation myth called the Enuma Elish. And in this creation story, in order to create, the creator God Marduk first had to defeat all the other gods, right? So it's a conquering story. It's in order to create, I have to destroy all the other gods in order for creation to happen. So Marduk violently overthrows the chaos in order to create. But from the Genesis story, it's clear from the beginning, our God has no need to conquer any rivals. He is the singular creator God. 
Rather than violently overthrowing the chaos, God orders the chaos by God speaking. This is an act of love and light calling things freely into being. That's the unique thing about this God is God is creator freely, not out of compulsion or manipulation. This God creates out of God's love. So from the Old Testament, we see that God's people, at least in their time of faithfulness, have always affirmed one God. And this marks them out as strange because they're living in this pagan world where there are lots and lots of gods. But this group of people says, no, we believe in one God. Yet even today, as Christians, we are monotheists. We confess one God. But when we confess our belief in one God, often in practice, we still give final allegiance to other things, to other gods. We mix up our worship. Now, this is, of course, nothing new. We've seen throughout Israel's history, they believed in the one creator God. And yet what often happened, and it's our story too, but in the story of Israel, they'd keep kind of sneaking in foreign gods. <laughs> so they'd worship these foreign gods alongside these other ones just to cover their bases. And what was amazing about it is they even did this with Moloch, the Canaanite God who demanded child sacrifice. This is why the Bible says seven times, do not give your kids to Moloch. There are lots of things that the Bible says once or twice, and we make a really big deal about it. Seven times the Bible says, don't give your kids to Moloch. So that should be really clear. I wonder if this mixed worship is true of us. I trust God, but I still think that I need to be in control. Genesis is clear. Before anything was, God created. God exists before all things. This means he's not only the God of the sea or the sun or the waves. He's not merely the tribal God. He is the creator of everything. So the question remains, why should we trust in false things when we serve the one God who is creator? The second thing to see today is we can trust our lives to him which requires repentance. So the first is God creates out of nothing. But second, Christians believe and affirm we can trust our, God, our lives to this God who creates out of nothing. And that requires repentance. It requires laying down the other things. We can trust our God for security, peace, flourishing. And to say that we trust God means we orient our lives in such a way that we follow him. It means that we turn around from the Molochs and Mammons in our life, and we turn to him. For Jesus, this meant turn the other cheek, walk the second mile, embrace the prodigal, love your neighbor, love your enemy. It's this radical way of living in a world full of, full of idols. The third thing that we see is God purposes the chaos of our lives and in the world. It says in verse 2, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So there's this image before creation of this murky, chaotic darkness that's present in the, chaotic, in the creation account. It's like this murky darkness is just like sitting there. It's like there's water, but it's formless water. It's formless chaos. It's without substance and without purpose. Genesis says God purposes the stuff. So you can read Genesis a couple different ways. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are unique. You can read it as God speaks and things come into existence. And that's true, completely true. But you can also read it as there's just murky substance there and God gives that purpose and intention. God speaks and that stuff comes into order. Water then for the people of Israel and for ancient peoples was a symbol of chaos. 
and even of evil itself. So the children of Israel, especially, you think about, they were desert people, not seafaring people. So whenever you're in the Bible and you're reading the Bible and you hear about the waters of the seas, it happens a lot in our psalm reading. We talk about the seas and the waters. In Hebrew writings, there's this element that it's talking about that which is chaotic and murky and even evil, that which we don't understand, the disorder and the chaos that we don't really know about. In the beginning, the ancient scriptures are saying, our God is the one who hovers over the waters, over the murky chaos. Our God is Lord over all of it, and our God purposes it. Now, there's another story in the Old Testament that this becomes super important. In the book of Exodus, we see that the children of Israel have been set free from captivity in Egypt, and then they're surrounded, okay? So they've got Pharaoh's army chasing them, and then they have what in front of them? Do you know the story? The Red Sea. The the waters, right, are right in front of them. And what God does is God parts the sea. So not only does he part the sea, it's this sign of the reality that I'm the Lord over chaos. So when you find yourself stuck and you go, I got enemies chasing behind me, and then all that's in front of me is chaos that I don't even know what to do with, God steps in and he orders that chaos. He parts it. He brings order to it. He brings order to the mess. He cuts straight through the evil all the way to the other side. So Israel experiences God with them in and through the waters. From the beginning, God has always hovered over the waters, over the darkness, and God is still with us in chaos today. Fourth thing, God's light reveals and heals. So God then said, verse four, let there be light, and there was light. That's verse three, actually. And God saw the light, that the light was good, verse four. What God does when he creates light is he creates the ability for something to be seen, something to be revealed. So in the beginning, only darkness is over the surface of the deep. There's only shadows. In him, there is light. At Epiphany, we're reminded that we are often blinded by our false stories. We have particular ideologies and narratives. Some of them are large scale. Some of us uh, get trapped in cultural narratives, and some of us have neighbors that get trapped in cultural narratives, ways of explaining the world that cause us to be blind. But some of them are small scales, things we've inherited from our families, things that have been said about us that actually run and rule our lives. Well, our God is the one who not only reveals, but the one who created the whole process of revealing in the first place. That's who God is. Now, I want to look at how these play out in our gospel reading. So if our gospel reading's familiar, it's because we already had part of it just a few weeks ago during Advent. This is where the lectionary gets a little weird because we've read some of this already before. But then we stop short of Jesus' baptism. Here we hear of the baptism of Jesus by John. And in the gospel reading, we see these four things find their home in Jesus. Remember John the Baptist. He had two weeks where he was like center stage in Advent. So you've heard about John the Baptist before. His message is pretty simple. Repent and be baptized. John is telling Israel that they need to be re-immersed in their story. They have forgotten their story. They've forgotten who God is and who they are. So John believes something apocalyptic, something world-changing is about to happen. And in order for them to step fully into it, they need to remember who they are. They need to know who they are. And God is doing that through the waters. Again, nothing new. Water was a big deal. 
The children of Israel were delivered through the crossing through the water. John is saying in order to be ready for this thing that's about to happen, you need to know at the core of who you are, you're a people who have been delivered through the waters. You're a Red Sea crossing people. God has delivered you. God was faithful. Yes, he's been silent, but you are still those people. And notice John doesn't do this by just giving them a teaching standing in front of them and saying, let me tell you a little bit about your story and where you come from and your background. No, they need to be reminded of it physically, in their bodies. They need to walk it out. This is why you can see Christians later took this moment of baptism and it was reinterpreted in light of Jesus. So Christians say, not only are we Red Sea people, people have been grafted into this story, we are resurrection people. So when we went under the water, we somehow participated in Christ's death. And on the other side, we somehow participate in his resurrection. Why? Because Jesus stepped into the chaos for us. He is still the God who hovers over the waters. He is still the God who purposes the chaos. So John knows in order for them to see Jesus for who he is, they need to see Jesus as the fulfillment of their identity as God's people. In the same way in our lives, the first step in preparing for God's active presence in our lives is to remember we are his. This is crucial for us because there's so many other things that want to claim our identity. It is so easy today to define ourselves by our political affiliations, by our cultural groupings. Think about on a deeper level some of the narratives that we have around shame that shame desires to claim our identity, that we are so often convinced there's something deeply flawed in me that can never be healed, something wrong with me. Sometimes we're driven by a narrative of disconnection, and so it leads us to seek the approval of others at all costs. So our life is all about, what do they think about me? Many of us would never say this, or we know enough to know that we shouldn't live that really on the surface, but we're still driven by what does that person think of me? Or what do the people of influence think of me in our lives? So often we're driven by fear. In fact, I talked last night about how the Herod story is really all about that. Herod is driven by fear and it leads him to rage. But so many of us are driven by fear and it leads us to pursue control at all costs. After my car accident, I remember there was this immediate feeling of like, okay, how do I fix this? How do I make this all better? My first question to my brother, who was sitting next to me, is I said, I, I was good, right? Like, I did the right thing. Again, it's all about me controlling the situation, controlling the narrative. When we give in to these idols, shame, approval of others, control, we allow these things to take the center stage in our formation. But the gospel of Jesus says, no, you are the one who's been redeemed and liberated and washed. And then John calls them to repentance. He says, someone greater than him is coming, and he will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Well, what does that mean, baptize you in the Holy Spirit? Well, the story of Israel, if we look at the story of Israel, that it, their story doesn't end with the crossing of the Red Sea. They're then led into the desert, and in the desert, God is with them as fire and, and smoke, right? And Israel's hope was one day God would be with them in a more personal way. Then we hear that Jesus himself has come to be baptized. So so this is the story is 
you know, the children of Israel experience God's presence, and then there's this hope that God will one day dwell with us. God will be with us fully and completely. So then in verse 9, we hear this story of Jesus coming to be baptized. He shows up. John's been preaching repentance. This is the epiphany. This is the revealing of Christ. Before this, Jesus' identity as Messiah was known to a few people, some shepherds, some magi, a few other people. But here, the glory shines for all to hear it. As Jesus is baptized and he's coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending like a dove. Then there's a voice from heaven that says, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. John the Baptist called Israel to remember God. But one way to think about Jesus is Jesus is the only one who remembered God fully. Jesus is the one who remembered who Israel is and the one who lived it out fully. One of the things that Christians have affirmed and Jews have affirmed is that our God is the one who creates out of nothing. There's this Latin term, ex nihilo, and it means out of nothing. The important thing to affirm in that is we are completely dependent on his grace, not on our own effort. Our God is not dependent on us. We are dependent on God. In fact, our dependence is the primary definition of the part that we play in God's kingdom. We join with the story, but we never do it on our own. I've told this example before, but it's, it's like when I was six years old and my dad built a Ford in our backyard and my dad is like, was in construction for many years and he knows what he's doing. And the neighbors were all like, what kind of building are you building in the backyard? And he's like, this is a tree house for my kid. And, and he, we're out there. And then I said, dad, can I help? And he's like, sure, you can help. And I helped a lot at six years old, you know? So, so he basically, my help was he held my hand with a hammer and he showed me how to hammer a nail. And I got tired and I kind of moved on. Well, that's a little bit of an example of how we participate in God's kingdom, (laughs) that we do get to participate fully and we are invited and our hands even can do work, but it's ultimately God's work. It's not our work. It's only participation. In fact, the children of Israel were given a sign throughout their history of their utter dependence on God. And today in our 21st century, this freaks us out. But the sign was Israel was told to circumcise their male children. This is an odd act. Like we think back on this and we go, out of anything in the world, this is what God chose. He could have told them to carry around bumper stickers, right, with his name on it, wear what would Yahweh do bracelets, right? (laughs) Change the profile picture on Facebook to a piece of manna. But instead, no, he chose this, circumcision, Now, we could speculate all day on why to choose circumcision, but we wouldn't come up with an answer. And that might be the reason it was chosen, because it doesn't really make sense. (laughs) It required trusting in God. But circumcision was even a way to, it was a way to identify that these people are God's people. But actually, more importantly than that, it was to identify God's grace is his own. He's not dependent on anyone else. He is God. So when John is baptizing, he's saying to the people, he's saying, you've forgotten the God who creates out of nothing. You've forgotten you didn't do anything to make this happen. You've forgotten your story. You've forgotten the God who ordered the chaos and was faithful to you. And now I'm calling you back into the story. 
to remember the God in whom you trust. But, he says, one is coming who's actually going to be God's presence. That's what baptize you in the Holy Spirit means. The one who's going to be God's presence, God's Holy Spirit with you and in you. And because of Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells us. The most personal way that God could live amongst us. John was telling them to turn from their self-dependence and recognize the God who saved them out of nothing. So this is this big churchy word, repentance, that we talk about. When we hear this word today, at least I do, I often think about street preachers with bullhorns carrying signs declaring that the end of the world is near and people need to get their act together. Repent, though, in this world was a political term. It meant open yourself up to the possibility there's another way and then turn around, change course. But it does raise an important question. Why did Jesus need to be baptized? If baptism is about repentance of sin, about recognizing I've not acknowledged this God who creates out of nothing, I have turned to false counterfeit narratives, well, Jesus didn't do that. He had no sin. Remember, God steps into the chaos with us. Here is the beauty of Jesus' baptism. He is standing with us. He is the true Israelite, standing in repentance for the sin of Israel, for Israel's rejection of the ex nihilo of God. And he is the true and faithful human being, revealing himself to humanity and reconciling a humanity that's far away to the Father. He steps into the chaos with us. He was baptized for us. And when each of us go through the experience of baptism, we're simply participating in Christ's baptism for us. In early church history, and this is beautiful, you can find these icons if you do a little bit of Googling and poking around, but the scene of Jesus' baptism was interpreted mythologically as a descent into the realm of death and Satan. So some of these icons that you see are beautiful. There's the dove above his head, and then there's demons below him, right? And he descends into the death, and then his immersion, by his immersion, the waters are purified, and the demons are conquered. That he changes the waters. That's another way of saying he orders the chaos, right? Those who are baptized share in his victory over the powers of darkness. I just want to say, woo, right? This is an amazing thing. And we're told the heavens were opened. Heaven is the way that things will and should be as opposed to the way things are now. Heaven is the reality of God's desire for the world. In this moment, heaven was experienced fully. And then it says the spirit descended over the waters just as at creation. The spirit hovers and God speaks. The Father makes a declaration over the Son. We often live and long for the approval and acceptance of our fathers or those who play fathering roles in our lives. Some fathers in our world never give it. Some fathers are tongue-tied and don't know how to say it. All fathers are imperfect. Here, the Heavenly Father says of the Son, This is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Now this has been pointed out. I think I heard it from Henry Nouwen, but noticed Jesus has not yet done anything from an earthly perspective. He's not performed any miracles. So Jesus is not looking down and going, look at that good miracle. Attaboy, 
Good job, Jesus. You're my son whom I love. No, he hasn't done any of that yet. He hasn't been acclaimed as a teacher. He hasn't died on the cross. He hasn't even been tempted. Before, well, he hasn't been tempted in the wilderness. And before everything, he is affirmed as the son of the father. If Jesus is truly baptized in our place, that means each of us can say he is saying that to us today. So that means no matter what mistakes you've made in your life and the shame you may carry because of that, no matter what you've done or haven't done, that's the confession that we pray, what I've done and what I've left undone, no matter any of that, because of Jesus, your father says, this is my dear child whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. That's the foundation of who we are as the people of God. We have to hear that. So let me end with this. Let's hear those things I said in the beginning afresh in light of this story. God creates out of nothing. So God is not manipulated or coerced. His creation and his incarnation are acts of his love. This is who he is, the loving God. In a world of tribal deities and mythologies, each competing to see who would dominate other peoples. Our God doesn't have any rivals. He needs to defeat before creating. Creation is a free act of his love. Second, because of who God is, we can trust our lives to him, which requires repentance. John's message is to repent and the forgiveness of sins. We often turn to other gods. We mix our worship. We find our identity elsewhere. But he is faithful to us. Third, God purposes the chaos in our lives and in the world. So God is faithful to us even when our repentance is lacking. Think about that. Many of you maybe didn't grow up in the kind of holiness traditions that I did. But as a little kid, there's even this question sometimes of like, okay, when I repent of sin, am I repenting hard enough or good enough, (laughs) right? Like, is my repentance even good enough? Well, even in the midst of that, I mean, the answer is actually no. (laughs) But in the midst of that, even where our repentance is lacking, he is baptized for us. He is not content to leave us in the chaos of the world. He stands in solidarity with humanity. Jesus goes under the waters for our sake, and our baptism is a participation in his baptism. And fourth, God's light reveals and heals. So that means no longer does murky chaos rule the day. Darkness must be separated out. Now, I loved what John said last week. Darkness itself is not bad, right? Like there's not something wrong in darkness. There's appropriateness for darkness. But this is this idea of putting it where it's supposed to be. (laughs) There's a separation of light and darkness, which is so critical and so important. Here, Jesus is revealed as the Messiah in his baptism, the Christos, the spirit-empowered one. And a voice from heaven says, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, hear me. Jesus is always secure in his identity. You may hear some people say this. I don't necessarily agree with it, that Jesus would doubt, was doubting his identity and needed to hear that from the Father. I think his relationship with the Father was secure. He didn't need to hear that. But the world needs to hear the Father's proclamation. Jesus is God's son. And because of Jesus' drawing near to us, we too are children of God. These words of the Father are words for us. Because of Jesus, I am his child and so are you. The word has gone out. God has spoken. The triune God is at work in Jesus' baptism. Water, spirit, 
speaking. God has entered into the chaos with us. May we turn the light to the light and away from the shadows. May we know the God who has joined us in the waters and who has brought about new creation. And may we stand with a grieving world that has forgotten its hope, trusting that when we do, we are also standing in the middle of the heart of God, the ecstatic joy of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.